Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of Talking France, a podcast by The Local about all things French and in particular the upcoming presidential election. I'm your host, Ben McParland. In this week's episode, I'll be joined once again by the local France's editor, Emma Pearson, who will bring us up to date on the latest news and talking points with just four weeks to go before the first round of voting. Emma will also help to explain why French people tend to vote differently in certain parts of the country compared to others. We'll also hear from the local's political columnist, John Litchfield, about the possible impact of the end of most COVID restrictions in France, even though cases are rising once again. He'll also look at whether President Emmanuel Macron is panicking about petrol. I'll also be joined by French political scientist Jean-Yves Camus, an expert on the extreme right, to find out whether France as a country really has moved to the far right in recent years. Is it inevitable that the Elysee Palace will one day be occupied by a president from France's extreme right? And of course, we'll run through a few French phrases and words that'll be handy to know at election time. Now, Emma, before we go on with today's roundup, there's just a question that I think we should answer that uh, I've seen a couple of people posting on Twitter. Is there any way this election, presidential election, can be delayed at all, given what's happening in Ukraine? Well, it's complicated um, because presidential elections are actually covered in the Constitution. Um, Article 6 of the Constitution says that the head of state must be elected every five years. And then Article 7 goes into even more detail and says that the election must take place at least 20 days, but no more than 35 days before the expiry of the powers of the incumbent president. So... Macron's current term expires on May 13th, so theoretically the election could be pushed back by a bit. But uh, we have two rounds of voting, which have to have two weeks between them, and polling traditionally takes place on a Sunday in France because it's deemed to be the day that the French are most likely to be at leisure to go to the polls. So given all those factors, we could push polling back to April 17th and May 1st, but that's actually only a week after the current polling dates, and it's really hard to see what the advantage would be in that. Okay, I mean, this re- this question was probably asked because there was a precedent that both the local election, or at least the second round, and the regional elections were both delayed due to COVID restrictions at the time. So, but regional and local elections are different. This is not the same as the presidential election. So, we're on. We're April on, 10th, April 24th, uh, nothing's going to stop us. Emma, we're only four weeks away from the first round of voting. What's the latest on the opinion polls? Well, the Macron bounce that we saw last week seems to have been continuing. He's on about 30, 31%. Uh, Last week, we had four candidates who were all sort of fighting it out for second place. Marine Le Pen has slightly drawn ahead from the pack um, with those four, and she's on about 18%. When you say drawn ahead of the pack, we're talking about drawn ahead of Valérie Pécresse, centre-right, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, far-left, and Eric Zemmour, extreme-right, who are the pack. Now, if Macron gets 30, 31%, that's a jump on what he scored in the first round in 2017. It feels like he can do no wrong at the moment. Four weeks to go, Ben. Anything can happen. Anything can happen. And we'll keep you up to date, obviously, with all the polls each week on the podcast. Just now, time to round up some of the latest news and announcements. 
Emma, let's run through a few things that have happened over the last few days in the last week that could have a bearing on the election. First of all, where do we start? Should we start with fuel prices? Yeah, this is one that I think really could have a bearing on the election. And it's one that in previous episodes, our experts have said could be the thing that puts a, a roadblock in Macron's path back to the Elysee. Uh, cost of living is going up. It was going up anyway. It's been seen a big increase, obviously, since the invasion of Ukraine. Price of petrol particularly has been soaring over the last week. It's well over two euros at the pump now. Just uh, yesterday, the Prime Minister Jean Castex announced that they were going to be taking off or reducing the, the cost of petrol by 15 cents a litre from April the 1st. Now, this Castex wasn't meant to announce it on Sunday. He's meant to announce a big uh, whole plan for how to reduce cost of living. As I understand it, he says, if I spend 60 euros on filling up my car, I'm gonna save nine euros. Basically, when I go to pay at the garage, they're gonna reduce it and the government is gonna reimburse the garage. This is obviously an issue that the government and Macron particularly is keen to just be aware of and be seen to act. Yeah, definitely. We had two escargots over the weekend, um, Operation Escargot, which is kind of what we would call a rolling roadblock. It's a very popular method of protest in France. And we had about 70 lorries converging on Lille on Saturday in protest over the price of fuel. It is an issue. And just to give you an idea of, of, of how big an issue this is, eight out of 10 people in France own a car. Eight out of 10 households, sorry, own a car in France. So it's obviously a big issue for voters, potential voters out there. What else has been going on this week? Should we talk about pensions? We can talk about pensions, yeah. This was a slightly unexpected announcement from Macron, actually, that he's probably his first actual big policy announcement of the campaign is that he wants to raise the retirement age from 62 up to 65. And on the face of it, it's a bit of a surprising move, really, because he did a big pension reform in his last um, administration. It didn't actually change the retirement age, but it did change a lot of other things and it got rid of special regimes that allowed people to retire early. And it was controversial. It was very controversial, in fact. We had the largest transport strike since 1968. We had two months where it was just everything was disrupted. But at the end of all that, he did actually manage to push it through the parliament. He got his reform passed and then it was just about to be implemented and then COVID happened. Let's keep an eye on that then. And the reaction so far has been muted. Are people talking about this this plan to raise the pension age to 65? Is it a big issue? Uh, yeah, no, it's certainly been the, the thing that people were talking about in a political context this week, that it's been run into a lot of opposition, again, from his political opponents, as you would expect, but quite a few unions have stepped up and are not happy about this. So it's fair to say that will probably be controversial again in his next term, if he has a next term. One to watch. Interesting issue anyway. We should also mention the end of pretty much all corona restrictions, coronavirus restrictions, including, and I know this is one you're excited about, is no longer need to wear masks at the workplace. You're going to see my face tomorrow for the first time in two years, Emma. Yeah, are you going to get rid of the beard at all? We'll see about that. That's my kind of own personal mask. But but masks are going to go in the workplace. They're going to go in shops. Is that right? The vaccine pass is going to go. Is it true? It feels like, you know, at one point the election was going to be about Macron's handling of the COVID crisis. It feels like no one's really talking about it anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, totally been overshadowed by Ukraine. Yeah. This is all happening. It's genuinely is a big thing. I mean, the vaccine pass especially, that's been in place in different forms since summer 2021. We've got very used to having to flash this every time we go to a bar or a cafe now. So that going is a big thing, but it doesn't feel like it's being talked about, even though cases are actually going up slightly yeah, over the last five days. So we'll see what happens next. Yeah, uh, I mean, the government could be forced to act again if cases rise. We should say that they're rising across much of Europe. It's not just 
just in France, is it? Yeah, there's a, it seems to be a small wave across Western Europe. Um, the health minister, he says he's not too worried. And when the spring weather comes, we're all moving outside. That will probably get rid of that. So let's hope he's right. Excellent. And finally, one interesting thing, or at least we found it interesting here at the local, was uh, the declaration of uh, wealth by the presidential candidates last week, where basically they all have to reveal how much money they've got and how much property they've got. What stood out for you, Emma? Yeah, well, two things stood out, really. But firstly, it's an incredible level of detail they go into. It's not just a broad brush thing. You find out everything about these. And it's all in the name of transparency, but it does feel a bit like you're peeking through their windows. But um, some of the things that stood out for me is uh, Emmanuel Macron, often lambasted as président des riches, um, is not actually all that rich. Uh, he's got quite a few bank accounts. He's got a, a comfortable salary from his time at the Elysee, but he apparently doesn't own any property or even a car. Yeah, I remember in 2017 when Macron was forced, or when Macron's Déclaration du, du Patrimoine, I think they call it in French, was released, nobody believed him. Everybody said, hold on, he's an ex-banker, he's, he's got to be richer than that, he must be hiding stuff. So there was already this kind of idea of Macron being hiding his wealth uh, somewhere. But the most wealthy candidate in the race is Valérie Pécresse. Yeah, by a mile. She's worth 10 million euro. Um, that's three properties, including one that she Airbnbs. So if you're a real politics nerd, that could be your next holiday destination. She's got a million euros worth of shares in General Electric, which is where her husband works for. She's got original artwork. She is rich. And at the other end of the scale, we have Philippe Poutou and Fabien Roussel of the far left. And is it right that they're both into their overdraft? Uh, no, Fabien Roussel was in his overdraft right. and Nicolas Dupontagnat, who's the sovereigntist candidate, was into his overdraft. Philippe Poutou, he's, uh, he's loaded. He owns a Peugeot 308. Is that right? Is that a good car? No, not really. Right. OK, fair enough. So we should say that this law where, where candidates have had to declare their wealth came about in 2013 after former budget minister Jérôme Kauzak was found to be hiding uh, a lot of money in Swiss bank accounts. The idea is that it's uh, to strengthen trust uh, in, in the public around the process uh, of the election. People say it's voyeurism. It is good for gossip. There's no doubt about that. People, the French media have covered this in a lot of detail, more than really is necessary. But let's face it, we all like a good gossip. Just a reminder to our listeners, this podcast is only possible thanks to those who've supported us by becoming members of The Local. It takes time and resources to produce our independent journalism. If you're not yet a member but would like to join, you can find a practically irresistible price for your first month by visiting thelocal.fr slash podcast offer. Emma, uh, here at The Local, we love a map of France. And the one we're looking at right now is the 2017 first round of vote, which shows us a kind of geographical divide for French voters and who they voted for. Now, we often talk about in France of regional divides, rural, urban divides. The map for the first round shows clearly a kind of east-west divide with the east and the northeast, the southeast, voting for uh, Marine Le Pen in the first round and the west and the northwest voting for uh, Emmanuel Macron in the first round. That's a kind of very general look. We know that on a kind of local level, there's lots of nuances to explain that. But there's no doubt that Marine Le Pen has certain heartlands in France where she can count on a strong percentage of the vote. 
Let's go through them a little bit because the reasons are slightly different in each case. One of those areas is northeastern France, very much Le Pen's heartland. Yeah, absolutely. This is the French Rust Belt, really. It's the former industrial area, the former coal mining area that these days has got high unemployment levels and the social problems that go with that. A lot of these areas used to be quite strongly communist, but they've very much shifted to work to Le Pen and her message sort of anti-globalisation, anti-European, anti-immigration resonates quite strongly with people who feel left behind and let down by the current system. Put you on the spot here, Emma. Two departments in the second round of the French election in 2017, only two voted a majority for Marine Le Pen. Do you know where they were? I'm going to guess a northern one, so maybe Nord. You're not far off. There was two departments were both in the in the northeast, uh, N, A-I-S-N-E, and Pas-de-Calais, who voted over 52% for Marine Le Pen. Some of the other departments which voted for Le Pen were in eastern France, which has another slightly different reason why Marine Le Pen, or the far right, does well. Yeah, and this is kind of a historical reason, really, that the, the region of Alsace-Lorraine has kind of, has gone back and forth between France and Germany quite a few times, usually in traumatic situations like war. And it's left the whole area with its own quite distinct identity. That it has a lot of German influences, a lot of German food, Christmas markets. Uh, it has slightly different laws to the whole of the rest of France. And it also has a, a understandable fear of foreigners and invasions, which I think makes it quite susceptible to a far-right message. Yeah, there's a... A strong identity in that part of France. Uh, I think I was just reading that, you know, although, again, the vote is, the nuances must be added. Somewhere like Strasbourg has a very low turnout for the far-right National Front. But in rural areas, in places like Alsace-Lorraine, the vote is quite high. Um, and finally, Marine Le Pen's uh, real stronghold, uh, one that's kind of dated back since her father led the party, Jean-Marie Le Pen, is in the southeast of France or along the Mediterranean coast, but again, the reasons why uh, the far right and the pen have done well in southeastern France is different. Yeah, a lot of this is to do with um, worries about migration. Um, a lot of illicit migration to France comes up through the Mediterranean. People arrive uh, by boat from from Africa up through the Mediterranean. There are a lot of very multicultural areas on the south, like Marseille, for example, which clearly wouldn't vote for Le Pen. But overall, if you're looking at it by a département level, it is a, a strong area for her. It's also linked to the end of the Algerian War, where many of the French who lived in Algeria came back and settled in the southeast. And that's where Jean-Marie Le Pen, when he led the party, could really call on support for the Front National. But since then, her vote has, has spread or it's been it's picked up in the north and the east. Now, there are uh, regions of France where Marine Le Pen just can't really rely on strong vote. One particular region is Brittany. Now, why does Brittany not turn up for Marine Le Pen? It's a good question and it's quite an interesting one actually because Brittany doesn't have a very high level of immigration and often it's the areas that don't have a lot of immigrants that are more susceptible to an anti-immigrant message. So it's a bit of a mystery really as to why Brittany has this identity that's so strongly anti-far right, but it very much does. Some of the reasons that have been suggested have been that it's traditionally a, a seafaring area, it's very dependent on trade with the outside world, so it's quite outward looking. It's also got its own very strong regional identity, so this message of, oh, we don't recognise our own country anymore doesn't really resonate there so much because they have a strong identity linked to their region. Yeah, I was just reading about this subject and um, I came across a quote from Jean-Luc Richard, a sociologist and, and uh, professor at the University of Rennes, who said, Brittany, along with Ile-de-France, you know, the region around Paris, which we should say is, is 
uh, you know, high immigration, Brittany's low immigration, are the two regions where the locals, the people who live there, will uh, least likely to say that they don't feel at home, which we know is a kind of phrase often, you know, uh, said by Marine Le Pen's voters in other parts of the country. Now, there are obviously nuances, if you know, in terms of geographical divide. If we look at Macron's voters, for example, I'm going to put you on the spot again, Emma. There was one department in the second round of the 2017 election that voted 89% for Emmanuel Macron. Can you guess where it was? It's got to be Paris. You're right. Um, You know, we know that Emmanuel Macron does well in urban areas. Absolutely. Yes, Paris is uh, is very much his stronghold. Big cities really have been heavily for uh, for Macron. And it's to do with things like um, his message is more sort of cosmopolitan, more European, more globalist. And also it's quite strong on he's been keen on um, tech businesses, startups, all th- things that resonate more strongly with younger people who are working in cities. And also we kind of should point out that we're just voting in a presidential election here and it's a, a direct vote of percentage. So it's clearly better to ap- appeal in cities where there are a lot of people living than it is to appeal in more sparsely populated rural areas. And if I just pull out some stats again from the second round of the 2017 election, uh, the areas apart from that are in, in mainland France that voted for Macron, you know, in the top 10, we're talking Paris, we're talking the departments of Ile-de-France, uh, you know, the region around Paris, Haute-de-Seine, Val-de-Marne, Saint-Saint-Denis, and obviously, sorry, to, to back up what we're saying, two departments in Brittany, Ile-et-Vilaine and Finisterre, right on the west coast of France, where 77% of voters opted for Emmanuel Macron. There's also, you know, I think you mentioned this before, uh, in terms of kind of... Um, Areas outside the outside the main urban centres, where you know you're on the periphery of towns, where your props transport isn't so good to link you to the you know the centre of towns where there's jobs. These are also areas where people can vote Marine Le Pen. Yeah, there was a really interesting study done a couple of years ago that showed that the further away you live from an SNCF train station, the more likely you are to vote far right. And there was a really strong correlation between people who live a long way from public transport and people who vote far right. I'm going to bring in our political expert, John Litchfield here, who joins us on the line from Normandy. John, does the fact that Marine Le Pen still has election heartlands rather than strong support across all parts of France, in particular in urban areas, explain why she can make the second round but won't become president? I think this is her last chance as well. I I don't see that party or her surviving another defeat. That said, I mean, your your point about the regional spread is an interesting one, and and it's actually interesting in relation to Zamor as well. As you say, the traditional heartlands of the Front National were originally in the southeast, um, Marseille, Nice, Toulon, um, that corner of France. A lot of uh, people who were former um, colonists in in North Africa, um, a lot of people who possibly had never quite got over the end of the Vichy regime and were were nostalgic for that. Uh, And that kind of more sort of standard far-right vote was joined then before Marine Le Pen took over the party, but more so after she took over in the the old industrial heartlands of the northwest and the northeast, uh, Lille area and also Alsace-Lorraine. And in a sense, you've had two parties for a long time. You've had a a party that's kind of very socialistic, but national socialistic in its attitude in the north, Mm. and a party that's very sort of small business, anti-government in in the south. And that's division, I think, is one of the things that's held the party back. Um, Mm. She doesn't have much support in 
in Normandy, she has more. In the West, traditionally, she's not had much support. Even though the Le Pen family's from Brittany, they've never had much support in Brittany. They've always been rather poor in the Southwest. Normandy, yes. they've been growing. I mean, in my little commune here in Normandy, she's been getting 30% of the vote, or her party is, in, in every election for quite a while now. It'll be interesting to see whether that continues. And yet there's no immigrants apart from me here in the commune. So, you know, you can't see in a way why yeah. the, the Front National would do, the Rassemblement National now should do so well here. There are many complicated reasons for that. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's one of the things that's held her back. But I suspect now that issue has moved on. And, and if you look at Zemmour's vote, it's actually quite, in some ways, the kind of uh, opposite of, the, of her vote. Her, his strong areas are in metropolitan areas where she's weak and uh, uh, sociologically his support is is much higher amongst people income higher education than hers is so in a sense the two are complementary votes um and i think the danger in the next four years five years is that someone brings together those two votes behind a big party of the nationalist right whether that's more or whether it's now his new friend marion marichal um, marine le pen's niece remains to be seen but um, yeah. I think the great ambition of someone, one of those two or someone else, is to bring all that together and get rid of yes. those regional regional differences and therefore have a very strong party of the far nationalist right in the years to come. Interesting stuff. And we'll hear more from John later in the podcast. The local France has over 10,000 members. Their contributions help us grow our coverage of France and allow us to produce this podcast. If you'd like to join at a discount price, visit thelocal.fr slash podcast offer. Now, in 2012, far-right candidate Marine Le Pen gained what was then an historic 18% of the first-round vote. Five years later, she picked up over 21% of the first-round vote. This year, she's polling at around 18%. But... Another extreme candidate is in the race, Eric Zamor, who's polling at around 14%. That's roughly a combined score of over 30% for extremist candidates. If Marine Le Pen ends up facing President Emmanuel Macron in the second round once again, she's expected to do a lot better than she did in the 2017 runoff when she scored 33% of the vote. This begs the obvious question of whether French voters are becoming more and more attracted by the ideas of the far right. I asked that question to French political scientist Jean-Yves Camus, a specialist on the far right. He explained the answer was a little more nuanced. There's quite a paradox in, in French politics. The first thing is, if you look at the surveys of the uh, Commission Nationale des Droits de l'Homme, National Commission for Human Rights, uh, they have a survey that is conducted every year since 1946. So they actually ask people whom they are prejudiced against, and uh, uh, so against Jews, against Muslims, and so on. Mm -hmm. And by all means, French society is far more tolerant of minorities than it used to be only 10 years ago. Yeah. I mean, French society is less prejudiced against Jews and uh, less prejudice against Muslims. But I would say uh, what is worrying in this election is that uh, Zemmour does not only draw voters from the extreme right or the radical right or the far right, he, he does appeal to some of those who voted for Fillon in 2017. Mm. And uh, what I would say is that the conservative right, or at least a significant segment of the conservative right, has become far right. On the one hand, um, 
polls suggest the French people on the whole are becoming more tolerant of minorities. Why? How can we explain the rise of Eric Zemmour, the continued presence of Marine Le Pen, and you know both of whom are in double figures for first round voting? Uh, I've always written that the National Front is here to stay as a significant force in French politics, but it has no capability to come to power because if you look at the figures, uh, well, they got 17% 30 years ago, uh, 22 years ago, and, and are still around 17, between 17 and 20%. Uh, on the other end, what's new is Zemmour, mm-hmm. because once again, and you, you you say that if you had Marine Le Pen and Zemmour, uh, you're up to 30%. Yes. That's huge. Yeah. And the novelty is Zemmour, who is a man of the conservative right, who has turned radical and appears to a segment of French society who thinks that, first of all, uh, we did not care enough about immigration and ethnic identity. And I stress this is about ethnic identity. It's about who can become French, what does being French mean, and that's a huge change. Is a far-right president in France inevitable in the future? I do not think so. Uh, uh, So I think there's a majority of people here in this country who do not want the far-right to come to power. Sure. Uh, But on the other end, uh, there's also uh, a huge segment of the population who says we are fed up with uh, professional politicians and we yeah. want to get rid of all of them. So look at uh, how difficult it is for Valérie Pécresse to uh, uh, pour uh, more than 11-12% and look at what the Socialist Party has become. So there's really a wind of change and uh, I would say that especially the newer generation who is more interested in the uh, uh, ecology, uh, climate change, human rights, what's going on in, uh, in the Ukraine, what's going on with the Uyghur in China and so on. Uh, they, they badly want to uh, make uh, a new generation of leaders emerge uh, probably uh, between 2022 and 2027. So in fact, uh, the, the political situation here is that the mainstream conservative right and the mainstream social democrat left are just uh, down to the ground. We are now going to head from our office here in Paris back to Normandy and the Département of Calvados, where we're joined again by John Litchfield. John is the local's political columnist, and you can read all of his weekly articles at thelocal.fr. John, you're up in rural France at the moment. What are the main election issues for people in your area? The issues here are obviously somewhat different. Issues are things like security are not big issues in rural France, although some people say they are. Um, and there may be parts of rural France where it is an issue. I don't have a sense it's an issue here. I think the overwhelming issue uh, here um, is uh, is going to be um, fuel prices, food prices in, in the weeks to come. It may not be in time to affect this election. I don't think it will, but it could have a big effect on the parliamentary elections yes. that follow in June. Obviously, you know, here now, this was an area that was once sort of agricultural, pretty solidly, small industries locally. The farming has gone right down. At least it's, the farms have got bigger, and therefore a number of farmers have gone right down. The local industries have tended to go down, so people have to commute into Caen, which is, what, 30, 40 kilometres away. And so that's quite a big commute if you're, if you're, if you're faced with them. Um, 
fuel at two litres, um, two, two euros a litre. This week, the government has acted by capping or taking 15 cents off a litre of petrol at the pump so people t- are going to pay less, essentially, when they after they filled up their tank. Is this a sign... You know, Macron's uh, and his government acted quickly here. Is this a sign that uh, they're kind of maybe panicking about where this could lead to in terms of, you know, you know protests or resentment against the government? Um, panicking, not yet, but floundering, certainly. Uh, it seems to be very difficult for, for Bersi, the, the finance ministry, to get its head around the idea of taking taxes off to reduce the uh, the petrol price or the diesel price, uh, which would seem to be the obvious thing. I mean, you know, the bizarre thing is that when the petrol price goes up, as it has, when the fuel price goes up, it has, the taxes go up as well. The government makes huge killing whenever yes. fuel prices are this high. You would have thought it would be easy enough for them to take some of that tax off temporarily and 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 keep the, the price rise uh, down a little. I mean, the argument against that is it costs them billions, potentially, and uh, it's not something that therefore is billions spent evenly across the country. They would rather find some way of spending those billions and making sure that the easing of the effect of fuel prices being high hits the people that really uh, are hard, hard hit by it, which is why they've been talking about having another check to people who need to have their price, uh, need to have their car to go to work, while they've come up with this idea beginning of April only, so we're going to have to wait three weeks for it. Yes. Uh, having some kind of temporary 15% uh, rebate on your uh, 15 cents a litre rebate on your um, on your what you pay at the, at the forecourt. But I mean, 15 cents is not much when you can see that, you know, the price has gone up 30, 40, 50 cents. They're going to fall today, apparently, um, for, for because the the the, uh, the the wholesale world market price of oil fell last week, and so they'll fall today for two or three days and then right. go back up again. I think the danger for the government is that the up and upping and downing of, of the prices is going to infuriate people. Mm. Um, it's not just motorists as well. I mean, I saw today a headline in the local paper here that. Norman fishermen are saying it's hardly worth going out in their boats to catch wow. fish because their, their mm. diesel prices are so high at the moment. Yeah. Same for farmers, same for truck drivers. Mm. So, you know, I think so they're going to have to start thinking a bit more seriously than they've thought so far about what to do about um, about fuel prices. Interesting. And we'll watch this as, as it develops over the coming weeks and see how the government reacts as we near the first round of votes. John, finally, uh, this week we... Uh, we're in France. COVID restrictions or the remaining COVID restrictions are being lifted. That includes face masks at work, in shops. Uh, face masks remain in public transport. And the vaccine pass, which was a, a very controversial issue, is being dropped this week. Um, with cases rising in France, could this come back to bite the government over the next few weeks? Could they be forced to reintroduce some kind of measures? Well, yeah, the vaccine pass is being suspended. It's still on the on, on the statute book until July, I think, so they could bring it back if they needed to. I think it's very unlikely before the election for, for obvious reasons. The, 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 the thing is, they've jumped the gun. They clearly have, because they did say only two or three weeks ago that they were not going to remove the vaccine pass until the number of people in intensive care had fallen below 1,500. Well, last night it was 1,800, so you might say that's not hugely different, and it's much down on where it was, well over 3,000 not so long ago. But the the fact is that I think they did originally have that as a kind of rule that made some sort of sense, but Macron personally made the decision, no, we must have a date. And they guessed that 14th of March would be the date when it fell below 1500 in and the, and the, and the um, in hospital intensive care, and that the cases would still be coming down. Well, lo and behold, 
all, we seem to be going into a, hopefully not another wave, but certainly an increase, which is not seen just here, but very strongly in Britain and many other countries in Western Europe. Yes. And what the reason for it is seems to be a mystery to people, whether it's because uh, restraints are being relaxed, or whether it's mm. because this second variant of a variant of Omicron is, is is spreading more rapidly than the original variant did. Uh, the general feeling seems to be it's not going to be a huge new wave. That with the summer weather coming, it will be a blip rather than a wave. But as you say, that's potentially a danger. Uh, that if things do really zoom in the next two or three weeks, and the numbers of going into intensive care, and the number of deaths start to go up, he's going to hit the election point hit the election day to the point when Omicron or, or COVID seems to be out of control mm. again, having had a reasonably good record, I think, during, yes. during the pandemic. So yeah. it is something for him to worry about. Well, let me just finish with, with that question of Macron's record during the pandemic. It feels as though w with relaxing of these kind of almost final restrictions, he wants to kind of put it all to bed before the election. At one point, a few months ago, um, it felt like the election could be fought on Macron's handling of the pandemic, but it feels as though it's not even an issue. It's not a line of attack for his opponents at all. I think because the, the opponents realise that people are just tired of the pandemic and have yeah. something much more immediate to worry about now, and therefore attacking um, Macron on details of what happened two years ago when the government yeah. did get many things wrong initially, as many governments did, is kind of a waste of time. You know, I think there are still people out there who are very anti the health pass, very anti any kind of restrictions, who still believe that COVID is somehow a conspiracy invented. There are people out there like that, but, you know, I don't think that even the, the, the far right, far left people are bothering with them too much. Uh, and now, as, you, as you're right, they perhaps would have done had there not been this other big issue that's uh, overwhelmed the campaign. Mm. I, I think Macron's record overall, I mean, I got this in some trouble when I wrote one of the columns for the local a year or so ago say, saying that I thought his record was only five out of ten. And I think in the first year, there were many things they got wrong. So mm. something the vaccine rollout initially was very clumsy and slow, need, more than it needed to be, given how many how many doses they actually had in hand. What I score would you give him then, now, John? He, he, I would say it's up to six and a half, seven now. Right. I mean, I think that the vaccine rollout in the end was was considering France as a country that's naturally very resistant to vaccination by by a process of carrot and stick, and uh, has been has been extraordinary. You know, for France to be over ninety percent of those eligible vaccinated at this stage is with some uh, weaknesses like the over 80s, I think it has been an extraordinary record. I think the thing for which he and also Bruno Le Maire, the finance minister, deserve enormous credit, and it's a sense something we don't notice because it's been so successful, is just how successful the, uh, the programmes to keep to bail out individuals and businesses work at a huge cost, which has to be repaid. But France has had the most successful economic recovery and the most successful economic survival uh, in in a sort of um, you know um, yeah. in, in in a kind of um, uh, uh, induced coma for, for for six months or so of any of any big democratic country and therefore mm -hmm. I, I think he they do deserve enormous credit for that yeah. and perhaps are getting it more than we realise. John, thanks very much for joining us on the line from Normandy, and we'll hear more from you in next week's episode. Don't forget, if you'd like to be able to read John's weekly analysis on France and all our articles, you can join now at a discount price by visiting thelocal.fr slash podcast offer. Now, Emma, it's that time of the podcast where we introduce our readers to a few French phrases and words that we picked up during the election race. We know 
that election time is a great time for learning French. Let's go through a few of the words. Let's start with you. You've picked out a couple um, from this week. Yeah, now that we're into proper campaigning season, I've got a couple of campaign phrases. One of them is bain de foule, um, which literally translates as a crowd bath. Um, but it's what we would call a walkabout when politicians go out shaking hands, meeting the crowds. Macron loves a, a bain de foule, uh, so they say. Uh, but he has come a cropper on a couple of occasions. He got slapped uh, not so long ago, didn't he? So I think he was advised to avoid them but he does love one uh carry on uh i've got one here croc meme can you please explain what croc meme is yeah croc meme is kind of a jokey version of the extreme of a bandy fool um it means a granny hugger um in english we sometimes talk about politicians kissing babies as their sort of extreme campaigning but in france we talk about hugging memes grannies meme is the sort of casual term that you use for your granny in french meme or mammy um and apparently jean castex in his local politics days was known as a, a croque meme he loved to go and hug the grannies Excellent. Now, food and French phrases are often linked, uh, never more so than in an election time. We should mention that Eric Zemmour, the far-right candidate, was the victim of an egging, we would say in English, I guess. The French have a phrase that is not quite to do with egging, but but slightly uh, similar. Explain that one, Emma. Yes, enfariné. Um, it means to have flour thrown over you. Um, it's not happened yet, but it probably will. And as you mentioned, Eric Zemmour has already been egged. Although there doesn't appear to be a specific phrase for that in French. We don't talk about on earth, eh? uh, You just talk about throwing an egg at somebody. We do say enough is enough. <laughs> no, we Sorry. don't. Okay, that's really bad. <laughs> okay. Uh, one or two I picked out, uh, which I kind of like um, for close election races. One is dans un mouchoir de poche which is often used frequently uh, to basically refer to a really close race. You know, you can't really, uh, too close to call, it's going to go down to the wire. Um, I don't think this election will for the winner. However, you know, we could say that the race for the second round between the kind of uh, Valérie Pécresse, Marine Le Pen, uh, Eric Zemmour is dans un mouchoir de poche. Similar to that is coude à coude, elbow to elbow, which I quite like the idea of Pécresse and Le Pen elbowing each other uh, as they race for the finishing line. And a slightly more technical one, which I picked out this week, was Redevance Audiovisuelle, which I think is basically TV licence. Why has this one been in the news, Emma? Because Macron says he's going to scrap it. Um, it's part of his campaign to reduce taxes. So he's already reduced the tax d'habitation, which is the householder's tax. And in your autumn bill for um, tax d'habitation, you also get the TV licence. And if he scraps it, then we'll get no tax bills at all in the autumn for most of us. Redevance Audiovisuelle. There you go. There's your phrases for the week. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can find articles on many of the subjects we've covered today on thelocal.fr. And please send any questions you have to news at thelocal.fr. We'll be back next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.